to the All of Life show. I am your host, Stuart White, along with my beautiful, lovely, and talented, and amazing, and wonderful, and excellent wife, Alicia White. <laughs> I might have overdone it that you time. You did. That's okay, babe. I can take it. <laughs> well, here we are yet again. Welcome to episode 46 of the All of Life show. What are we talking about today, babe? Today we are talking about what does the gospel for all of life mean? That's probably a question that we get most when we tell people about the podcast or when we talk about the podcast, they say, what does it mean if the gospel is for all of life? Or or even one of the things I feel like we get a lot is like, oh, that's sweet. Oh yeah, that's nice that you guys came up with this idea. And it's like, no, 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 this is not our like own original idea. We're uh, happy to say that we're stealing this both from other people who have expressed the same and thing from the gospel. and from the Bible <laughs> itself. So um, here's the thing. The gospel being for all of life seems like such a simple phrase, right? It seems like something that is really easy to say. And you can mistake that you, you grasp what that means because I guess there is that initial like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I get that. It It's, it's for me. It's for everybody. That's what you're saying, right? And I guess that is true. Yes, we are saying that to a degree. Um, What Christians tend to say is the gospel is for salvation. And then what they do with that is they, they leave the gospel there on the day that they got saved and then they move forward. And we can tend to compartmentalize our life and into different areas and culture. So babe, like, uh, what, like what are the different areas that we compartmentalize our life? Politics, politics, um, culture itself. We can divide across racial lines. We can divide across anything. And some of these things aren't bad or, or, um, wrong in and of themselves. Uh, we obviously have differences in gender and, uh, it's different that I'm a parent than I am a, a child, you know, at different stages of life, that kind of thing. But the important thing to realize is that the gospel doesn't stop at the church. It doesn't stop at that initial point of salvation. That's just kind of your initial entry into the gospel. Uh, but one person I heard put it like this, it's the, both the door in, and then it's like, you get to explore all of the rooms, all the practical implications and outworkings of the truth of the gospel for every area of your life. But what I see so much, um, and this is particularly true. We've been researching a lot of counseling and different things like that. It's true that we tend to think that, oh, well, yeah, that's good. Um, your faith is good for these areas. Maybe, you know, it's, it's real sweet that you have an idea that, you know, your faith might help you feel better about your marriage. Um, but that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that the gospel is simply one useful tool among many mm-hmm. to help your marriage feel better. When you're researching counselors, I don't know if you guys have ever called different types of therapists or counselors. You you probably like read their statements online or their bios or anything um, like that when you're searching for a good fit and you're looking for one and you'll see a lot of people that say, um, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't necessarily use that in my, in my counseling technique or approach, or they will say, well, if you're a Christian and that's what you believe, then I can counsel you in that, in that way. But for example, the gospel for your marriage or the gospel for parenting, if you were going to a biblical counselor or any counselor to solve a problem, we believe that the gospel is what can solve that problem. And so when a counselor says, well, we, we, 
we are a Christian, but we don't necessarily use Christianity as our approach to counseling, we would say Christ is the only answer that's going to fix this problem. And that goes for politics. That goes for everything in our culture, our marriage, our parenting, our disputes with, we have with family members. Yeah, there, there's an error that can happen even um, in counseling uh, in particular, but but in a lot of different things. Uh, and that is, it's called syncretism. It's it's mixing of your faith with a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, but that's not how Christ works. That's not how the gospel works. Uh, you would not want to be one caught guilty in adding to or subtracting from the gospel. But quite often that is what happens today. The sufficiency of Christ is now is they're basically saying it is not enough. So when we're saying the gospel is for all of life, we really mean that we really mean that the gospel actually applies to every area of your life in specific ways. It both applies in your righteous living in those areas. It reply, it applies in the dealing with the ways in which you sin in those areas and also providing the solution to that sin and those struggles. And it applies in things like relationships because relationships in a fallen world are muddy. They get messy. And when you don't have a gospel framework to reference uh, and you don't have the truth of the gospel and Jesus Christ to empower your ability to work through your relationships and that could be marriage, that could be friendship, whatever, parenting, uh, then you're going to end up off by maybe just a few degrees, but a few degrees down the road and you might find yourself miles apart uh, and you look nothing like the gospel. You look nothing like Christ in the way that you are being transformed. Babe, can you like, let's do it this way first breakdown for it. Like what if they're, they're the, it's their first time listening to the podcast and they have a question as simple as what is the gospel? Yeah. Okay. So we, we have an episode where we covered what is the gospel, but again, it never hurts to repeat it. So I like, there's a, um, just, this is more just a memory tool of sorts to use, but, um, some will say like, taking creation, fall, flood, and they'll, they'll go through this sort of story of redemption. Um, I like the one that is, uh, it's found in um, the book, What is the Gospel, uh, aptly, aptly named, but it, it goes, God, man, Christ response. So where a lot of people might start with creation, this actually starts with God because in the beginning, God. So you start in scripture with God and then all of the things that go along with that, this just helps you remember. Okay. So here's the deal. God created the world. It says that he created it. It says that he created everything good. And it says that he created and created it in seven days. But on the sixth day, he created man and it, man was the only thing that God said He's very good. And it said that man was created in his image and likeness. And this has implications that stretch all the way to today. This is what sets mankind apart, man and woman, that we are created in the image of God. The only thing mentioned in scripture that's created in the image of God. Yeah. Animals are not created in the image of God. The earth is not created in the image of God. And you see... Here's a, just one implication of this, that when you don't know this, when you don't know 
where you came from. You don't know who you are and then you don't really know what you're supposed to do. And often what you end up with is what we see in our culture a lot. Now people falling into the trap of kind of tying their, their rope to whatever sounds good, whatever seems right and true in their eyes, even if it's blatantly opposed to God, if it's wrong, we see the worshiping of creation. We see the, um, we see extremist animal rights groups where they believe animals are no different than human beings and they deserve the exact same rights. Um, we see these things getting missed. So this, this takes us from that. We mentioned God, we mentioned man, man was created, but then something happened shortly after. And that we see that in Genesis, we see that Man fell in sin uh, because we, you know, the account, uh, Satan, the serpent came and tempted Eve, deceived her. Adam sinned willfully. Both of them were sold the lie that Satan said, no, God does not uh, want you to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you will die. He's afraid, basically implying he's afraid that you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Mm -hmm. And so you will be your own gods. Sound familiar? This is what we are told today. We are told you are a special snowflake. You are a rosebud. You are perfect. There is no one quite like you. We praise the person well, even and in will, spite of their broken, I'll add on to that state. too, because I think a huge thing right now in culture is, um, seeking enlightenment, which yeah. that, I mean, there is so much of that going around that this personal quest for enlightenment, but what that really is, is people being enlightened to what they believe is the truth yeah. by searching, uh, created things to fill in the gaps yeah. of what their truth should yeah. be. Well, what we see is because of that fall, uh, sin entered the world, right? And so sin, it didn't just affect Adam and Eve. Like they didn't die right away, but they did die and they did immediately spiritual death set in. And what really happened is they were separated from God. They ended up not being able to have access like they had, because it says in Genesis that they would walk with God in the cool of the, of the day in the garden. In fact, after they had sinned, we see that they are hiding because they heard God walking in the garden. And in, in Genesis, when it's talking about, when it's talking about the curse of death, I believe that is talking about the actual curse of sin, like death is a separation from God. That is what death is. Yeah. That's what I believe hell will be a separation from yeah. God. It's both the literal physical, mm-hmm. like death and decay set in, in, in the world. In fact, when we see the picture of Adam and Eve being driven from the garden after they're told what the curse of sin will be, um, we actually see that the reason, one of the reasons they're driven from the garden is because there was another tree in the garden and that was the tree of life. And God says, if they eat of this tree, they will be forever separated. They'll be forever in their sins and live forever. Um, and so it says that God put an angel there with a flaming sword that guarded the garden and drove them out because one of the things he tells to Eve, um, or actually, uh, specifically to Eve, he tells her that the serpent, um, that her seed will 
be attacked by the serpent, that the serpent will strike his heel, but he will crush its head. And it was a very peculiar thing because Mm -hmm. Eve doesn't have the seed, right? And what they call that actually is this um, proto-evangelion that it's like the first preaching or allusion to the gospel. Babe, you are so smart. I know, I know. I remember (laughs) these big words. I probably flubbed that, you know. But (laughs) if you flub it, you just fake it with confidence, right? I sounded smart to me. (laughs) But it's this first preaching of the gospel in that we see that there's the promise that something will happen that will crush the enemy. And God is already at work providing the means of salvation, the way of salvation. So that is where we ended up. And if you have a biblical worldview, that is, uh, and you understand the, the gospel, then you're going to realize, oh, the problems in the world all stem ultimately in some way, shape, or form from the fallenness and brokenness, which comes from sin. That that doesn't mean that everything that happens is because someone sinned specifically, like you didn't get cancer because somebody sinned, mm-hmm. that, that sort of thing. But because of the fall, mm-hmm. death entered the world and thus sin, decay, and destruction. That's why it's important to distinguish sin from a particular behavior because sin, you can sin through a behavior, but it is not necessarily the behavior that is the sin. It is the state of your heart, which is the sin. And that happened at the fall. Yeah. Uh, that is something a lot of people mistake the two or, or don't really even mistake. They just don't realize that you're speaking of not just actions that are sinful, but that sin is actually a state of the heart. It is uh, like a, a disease of the heart. Part it's, of your DNA. Yeah, it's you're born into sin. And that was a consequence of the fall. So we've been through God. We've been through man, Christ. So God made that way. He made that promise. And his promise was his son. His son is Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin so that he was born outside of the bloodline, but still a man, but born outside of sin. So he was born perfect without sin, where all of us were born into sin. Then he lived that perfect sinless life. And he died a sinner's death, though. He was punished for sin that he didn't commit. And everyone thought they they were just putting this, you know, religious leader to death. But in fact, they were unwittingly affecting God's plan of redemption, of salvation. So Christians don't believe that we can be good enough to earn God's favor. We can't be good enough, no matter how good we are, because it's not a matter of doing and being good, it's actually a matter of curing the sin problem itself. Which is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world is that every single other religion says it's all about being a good person and working your way into heaven, basically. If you want to, if you're a Christian and you want to surprise somebody when you happen to stumble upon that fact in conversation with them. Uh, usually if you say you're a Christian, especially if you say you're like a pastor or something there, they'll go, Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I, I need to start doing better or, or something along the line, some sort of works based reference or yeah, that church thing never worked for me. I, I just couldn't be good enough. And, um, if you want to surprise them, you say something like, Oh yeah, neither could I. In fact, I'm, I'm not good at all. And it, they'll be like, what? And it opens the door to share the gospel with them. And so moving into that, that segue there, in fact, let's, let's focus in on that the gospel 
comes in the form of a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus, again, lived a perfect and sinless life, died in a uh, the sinner's place, a sinner's death. But if all he had done was die, he would be no different really at that point than any other religious emblem or leader or person that has lived. Because what, other people have pl- claimed to be, to be God yeah. before. And they've, they've claimed to be good men. In fact, that's what many people uh, attribute to Jesus. Oh yeah, he was a good man. Well, Good men don't make claims to be God. Good men don't make claims to be the way, the truth, and the life unless they actually are. If they're not uh, that, then they're liars. Yeah, which would make them a not good man. Yeah, which, yeah, lying is a bad thing. I don't know if you're aware of that. (laughs) So Jesus, though, what sets him apart is the resurrection. You have him rising from the dead, conquering death, because death is what happened when? in the fall, right? It's set in then. So you have this fulfillment of that promise that the serpent would strike his heel, but he would crush his head. The serpent that brought death, that brought sin sneakily into the world has been defeated. Satan, sin, and death are defeated at the cross. And then Christ conquers over them through his resurrection. So now it says that then he ascended into heaven at the right hand of God, where he makes intercession for us. And we have access to God, the father. Remember that access to God, the father was destroyed at the fall. We were driven out of that fellowship that we had with him at the garden. And now we have it restored. And in fact, this is another cool thing. The gospels record that the, in the temple where the Jews would go to worship, they had this massively thick curtain that was there to prevent people from getting into the holiest place, which is where in Moses day and in David's temple and Solomon's temple or not David's, but Solomon's temple that David designed, they would commune with God and meet with God though. They hadn't in 400 years since the, where we see the, uh, the new old Testament rather end. And we see this veil, this blocking barrier ripped in two at Christ's death. It just rips from top to bottom. This symbolizing that the blockade, the barrier, the thing that separated us from God has been torn in two because where the Ark of the Covenant used to sit inside the temple, there was the mercy seat of God. And that mercy seat uh, is where the lamb you know, was supposed to have been, and that is Jesus Christ himself. So he makes the way. And the beautiful thing about the gospel too, is that in the garden, uh, God, God gave, when he created man and woman, he gave them a free will. He gave them, uh, an opportunity to choose him or reject him. And he gave that to them through the choosing of, uh, will you follow my command? I said, don't eat of the fruit. And they chose to, they chose that they chose to want to be like him by knowing the difference of good and evil. And the, the beautiful thing, thing about the gospel now as it's being played out by him sending his son is that he has given us the choice to choose him again. You, you, 
your ancestors chose to sin. They chose the fall, but I'm giving you each and every one of you individually a chance to follow me, to worship me. And that's why the gospel is for all of life, because we have a choice every single day in these situations that we're dealing with in our daily interactions, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our politics, in our cultural views, in our relationships. We can choose in those moments to worship him or to choose our own selfish desires. And that is why the gospel is for every area of life. Yeah. If you want to get more specific on those, you can say, if you have an understanding of the way that the gospel applies, if you understand that it isn't just some other religion that came about and there's a bunch of other options out there, but that the claims of Christianity are exclusive, that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He is the only way that the explanation for the reason why things are the way they are in the world, why things are broken, why things are awful, why there is death and war and famine and destruction and decay. It all goes back to the fall. When you understand that, then if you were to, let's say we were to offer counsel to somebody struggling in their marriage, if we can come and bring them into unity with what the gospel says, why their problems are actually there, Mm -hmm. that There is a conflict between the two of them because they are each broken and fallen, living in a fallen world. And they're sinners that um, they don't need to identify as a sinner anymore because they are now a a saint, but they are not living as if they are saints. They're not empowered by uh, the gospel. And and this is the other thing I didn't mention um, before, but in the promise of what Jesus did on the cross before that, when he's with his disciples in the garden, he tells of the helper that he's going to send, that he will reveal all truth. He'll convict of sin, lead into righteousness and be uh, their wise counselor. And he's referring to the Holy Spirit. And it says that when he arose, he gave gifts to men that he poured out his Holy Spirit. We see this in Acts and in the book of Acts, we see uh, what is the day of Pentecost. And a lot of people put the emphasis on, oh, they all spoke in tongues. They all did this miraculous sign gift. And if you read it clearly, it actually is like, yes, that is what happened. They spoke in tongues, but they didn't just say random things. They preached the gospel in different languages to people who spoke those languages. And they told of the mighty works of God. There was purpose and intention in every gift given. Right. So we see that the Holy Spirit empowers the believer to uh, minister the gospel to people. The Holy Spirit empowers the people to declare the truth of the gospel and empowers them to live the Christian life. Because what we had this, I had this conversation with our oldest daughter just yesterday, I think it was. And she, we were driving along and she goes, dad, if a person dies and the last thing they did was sin, do they go to hell? And I honestly was a little bit surprised that she asked this. Um, cause I kind of was like, have I not taught you? You know, <laughs> we failed, <laughs> but you know, with, with kids and with anybody, as you're trying to minister and preach the gospel to them, oftentimes you think it's going in, but sometimes it's just bouncing off. And then suddenly there's just this opening of their eyes. Like God just graciously opens their eyes to the truth of it. Well, I got to tell her and explain to her your salvation isn't dependent on what you have done, but on what Christ has done. 
the Holy Spirit seals you. He keeps you, that you are resting in his righteousness, not your own. So if you're resting in his righteousness, if he accomplished the work, then how could you work your your way out of that? Uh, apart from if in theory you want to say, yes, you could just outright reject him. It just wouldn't seem feasible for somebody who's actually experienced that actually known salvation and known Christ and sealed and sealed by the spirit to do that. And scripture speaks of not having any of those lost from his, uh, Christ's hand and things like that. But I digress. We're not, we're not trying to talk. Yeah. We can do a whole nother episode of that. (laughs) But so to, to circle back to just the, uh, gospel in a marriage, for example, when you have those two sinners, who are sinning against each other and you need to counsel them in what is the truth. Well, you're going to bring them back to the gospel because their biggest problem is not um, a lack of information, though there may be information involved. Their biggest problem is not a lack of self um, confidence or um, what do you call it? Self-assurance or mm. um positive thinking or any of these things, that is not their problem. In fact, many of those things are sin and we're using the sinful tactics to try and accomplish righteousness and that will never, never work. So what you actually need is them to come to a point of brokenness and repentance over their sin, their own sin, and not this hurling accusations, uh, one to the other mm-hmm. and be like, you first, you, you first, you take over your, your part of the deal and I'll, I'll do mine, but I'm not doing anything until you budge. That's not it. You are each responsible for your righteousness before God, um, to, to be accomplished in Christ by your repentance and submission to him. So, That's one way that the gospel would apply in marriage. But let's just say practically, maybe it's not a marriage problem, but actually living out your marriage, right? There are other ways that you could say, uh, apart from the sin aspect, you can grow your marriage through the gospel because God actually designed marriage from the beginning. God created the man and the woman. Um, There are struggles, there are roles, there are identities there. And when you are unified with what the Bible says, with what scripture says of the roles of husband and wife and marriage and how it actually represents Jesus Christ and his church, the bride, then you're going to have a a whole different view. And that is what scripture says that Mm -hmm. the husband in, in the church is Christ and the bride is, is the church. Mm -hmm. And we are to submit to Christ as the bride. And in the same way, it says that wives are to do that for husbands. And then in the same way, husbands are to love their wives, how Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? With his very life. He laid down his life. These aren't things that Paul came up with in scripture as, Hey, yeah, that's a pretty good analogy. I should, I should use that one sometime. These are actually things that Paul, uh, realized were the way God made this. This is from the beginning. This is what God intended. And we want to live our lives empowered by the gospel. So that, you know, I don't want to go into every single area because we're going to talk about it in different episodes. But when we say the gospel is for all of life, we really mean that it is for 
all of life. It is for every single area. And I wanted to read this quote from a guy named uh, Abraham Kuyper. And Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch pastor who lived in the Netherlands in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He did a lot of stuff. He was a journalist. He founded a newspaper. He was a university founder, a professor. He was a member of their parliament at the time and prime minister. And he was very big on seeing the gospel implications of life worked out in every area of life. So this quote from him, I think is so powerful. And it is, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I got to read that again because I just love it. It's, it's a good quote. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, if you're thinking, okay, well, that's great. This guy said that. That doesn't make it true. Well, hold on. Let me just take you to scripture because scripture is our ultimate authority. So in Colossians chapter one, uh, he says, we'll, we'll start in verse 13. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and on in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We'll stop right there. If you want to dig a little bit deeper, you can go back into one of our earlier podcast episodes where we talked about worldview, but this is why the Christian worldview, it all goes back to this. If you say you're a Christian, you have to, you have to admit that, that what the Bible says is true. You cannot be a Christ follower and reject any part of the Bible. And what the Bible says is God created the world and he owns all of it. And if he owns all of it. He owns us. He owns our hearts. We are here for his glory, yet he is good enough. And, and well, he's just so good that he would just love on us, even in that we're not his little minions. He loves us like children, you know, like we are, like we are his and he is ours. And so we have to submit ourselves in every area of our life under his authority because he owns it. I believe, and I think it's what scripture ultimately even means here, is that he holds everything together by the power of his will. Jesus Christ is the one holding it together. And that should kind of come as like both encouraging and like a fearful respect comes upon you because he could have just let go. Mm -hmm. He could have said, you know what? I'm tired of this world. I'll start over. But no, that wasn't what the plan was. The redemption was always the plan because who God is, is revealed in Christ. And God wanted to reveal himself to us and have us redeemed by him. So he showed his love through Jesus Christ. As it says there again in verse 13, he rescued us 
The Father rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You can't, like you were saying, you can't just compartmentalize those things. You can't do the Thomas Jefferson approach and just cut the things out of the Bible that are too miraculous or that you don't like and just have your own Bible of your own making. You have to cut out of yourself the things in your life that are in opposition to that and not surrendered to what God is doing in you. If you have been saved, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have an obligation to surrender and be filled by the Holy Spirit. You don't have to go on in sin. Your identity, contrary to culture right now, your identity is not your sexuality. Your identity is not your gender. Your identity is not your job. Your identity is not your spouse. Your identity is not your kids. Your identity is not your skills or your your ability to do music or any of these things. Your identity is as a beloved son or daughter in Jesus Christ, Because of Jesus Christ, you are a daughter or a son of the King. And that is where your true identity is found. So if, if you understand this, the more you understand this, and believe me, this is an, a never ending unsearchable, not unsearchable, but un, you unexhaustible topic. Mm -hmm. The more you dig in, the more you find you never run out because the infinite God is who you're finding Mm -hmm. in this process. And you begin to go, Oh, Oh yeah, that, that's, that's what God is doing. That's how he works. That's what he's doing in my life. Mm -hmm. So guys, that's why the gospel is for all of life. I hope that was helpful in breaking it down, helping it become a little bit more understandable. Um, We appreciate that you guys have tuned in and we're excited to continue digging into this topic further, but breaking it down even more into why the gospel is for all areas of life. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for watching. And uh, until next time, God bless. Mm -hmm.